Now, you'll notice if you uh, ever visit the cemetery that uh, not all the graves or the grave markers are the same. Now, most of them are pretty similar. If you've been to a cemetery, who's been to a cemetery? You've been to one? You've driven by one? You know they exist. Okay. Uh, usually there's a marker, and uh, there's a date when the person was born and the date when they passed, and maybe an inscription that decide, describes maybe a little bit of who that person was or something that's important to them. Uh, but not all graves are simple this way. There are some graves uh, purchased by families uh, which are intended to display the importance and wealth of these families. They buy these tombs, and we would call them mausoleums, and they serve as the final resting place for the members of this family, but they also serve as a way for a powerful and wealthy family to display that they, in their life, were in fact powerful and wealthy. In fact, in some cemeteries uh, where there's a lot of wealthy and famous and important people, maybe such as uh, Southern California, you can even reserve entire sections of a cemetery and have your mausoleum built on it and instruct the cemetery that no one is to enter that area unless they're on an approved list. You can have a private uh, area for your family uh, only. Probably the folks who took this to the furthest extreme we might think of are the ancient Egyptians. They would build these massive monuments to their pharaohs intending to communicate, man, they were powerful and they were loaded uh, with money. Money, we should be clear on that nowadays. So the idea for the powerful and the wealthy and the influential is to design their tombs so that everybody knows how important they were when they were alive. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but did you realize you can design your tomb, if you want to, if that's what you're into, you can design it to your exact specifications, however you want it to be and how you want it laid out. You can't design your birth. You can't. Maybe it seems obvious, but I'll give you the reason. You're not born yet. You can't because you haven't been born yet. The best you might do in regard to your birth is kind of look back on it and sort of account for it. You might say about one person, you know, he did really well for himself in spite of the challenges he faced growing up. Or another person might say, well, of course he did well for himself. He had all the advantages of his family afforded to him. But you can't plan those things in ahead of time. All we can really do is, like I said, sort of account for them. Jesus could. Jesus did not begin at his birth. Jesus has always been God the Son. But at a particular time in history, Jesus was born to a woman, a man, God in the flesh. But since he has always existed because he is God, he could actually plan and consider every detail of his birth so that he would tell us precisely the kind of life he intended to live. If we choose, we can plan our funeral and our final resting place to tell people the kind of life we have lived. Jesus, though, was able to plan his birth to communicate clearly to us and everyone who might take a look the kind of life he planned on living. So in our time together this morning, I wanted to look at just a couple of details about Jesus' birth in the passage we read and knowing that each detail of Jesus' birth was planned intentionally by him on purpose, uh, we want to understand better the kind of Savior we have. 
really we can consider the details of Christ's birth announcements. They announce something about the life and work of Jesus. Now, normally we know this. When, when a baby is born, there might be a birth announcement. It might be put in a newspaper. It might arrive in uh, the mail. Uh, it might be read uh, from a card on, at church. Or somebody will open a box on a video on Facebook and a pink balloon will come out. That's the thing, I guess, nowadays. A birth announcement is intended to tell everybody, a baby's been born. But what we're going to look at is Jesus' birth announcements. It's not merely a baby has been born, but a baby is born who is going to live a particular way. So I'm going to look at three birth announcements this morning from Luke 2, 1 through 20. I'm going to give them to you to start. And here they are, three birth announcements. First, Jesus is a Savior for the small. Second, Jesus is a Savior from the shepherds. And finally, Jesus is a Savior worth uh, the wait. So look with me in your Bible at Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read verse 1 again just to remind you what it said. Birth announcement number one, Jesus is a Savior for the small. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this registration was the, occurred when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. So the operating assumption during the time of Jesus' birth by most of the people who were expecting Messiah at some point, the Jewish people were expecting the Messiah at some point, and the operating assumption was that the Savior would come from the line of David and would restore once again to the throne of David the glory and the power of David. So this was the assumption of everyone expecting the Messiah, that the Messiah would return The Messiah would come, and he would reinstitute the glory and the power of Israel with the glory and power of the throne of David. But look at the first verse of Luke chapter 2. Who has all the glory and the power? Caesar Augustus. This is not how this story is supposed to start. Caesar Augustus, sitting on a throne thousands of miles away, can issue a decree on a whim. You know what we ought to do? Let's have everybody in the known world go to their hometown and register. Uh, Caesar, that might be very, very expensive. In fact, it might, in fact, be dangerous for some folks in our community have very little means or cannot leave their place of employment or, I don't know, are with child. I don't care. And what happens when Caesar Augustus on a whim one day wakes up and wants everybody registered? What happens? Everybody registers. The great and the small, the wealthy and the poor, the influential and the marginalized, Caesar wakes up and has a bad case of heartburn, and the world gets turned on its head. The glory and power for Caesar that Caesar had was to the benefit of the glorious and powerful Caesar. He commands in the big and the small, they obey. Jesus, on the other hand, travels from Nazareth 80, 90 miles to the north of Bethlehem, via Mary's womb, arrives in Bethlehem, is born, and is placed in a feeding trough, a manger. Jesus wants to communicate to us, He is here for the small, the insignificant, the powerless, and the impoverished, the marginalized, the forgotten. He could have been born anywhere. He, on purpose, chose to be born 
in a forgotten place with nobody looking around and being placed in a, a feeding trough. We have to understand this. We should not mistake the humility of Jesus' birth for weakness. And we should not mistake the power of Caesar for strength. Let me say that again so you understand what I'm saying. We should not mistake Jesus' humility for weakness. Nor should we mistake and think that because Caesar is powerful, he has strength. Who has strength here? God does. Look what he does in Luke chapter 2. He uses Caesar to accomplish precisely what he meant to accomplish on behalf of not the glory of Caesar, but behalf of the marginalized and the small, and he did so in very unexpected ways. Caesar woke up and thought he had a brilliant idea. He didn't. God woke up and had a brilliant idea. I'm going to use this Caesar to do whatever the heck I want. And because God is so powerful, that's exactly what happens. God uses the powerful to do His will on behalf of the small and the marginalized, usually in very unexpected ways. So Mary and Joseph travel from Nazareth far to the north down to Bethlehem, a meaningless and forgotten Nazareth to a meaningless and forgotten Bethlehem. Read what the prophet says about Bethlehem. This is Micah chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it for you. You, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is born to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So the prophet says this of Bethlehem, when the Messiah is born in you, you will be so small that Judah won't even claim you. Judah was the area, the region that Jerusalem and Bethlehem were in. But Bethlehem was so small and insignificant. They say, you've been to Bethlehem? I'm sorry, where? Sorry, you've been... It's small and insignificant. If you thought Jesus' background was humble coming from Nazareth, which is humble, he goes to Bethlehem, a forgotten place on the map. If you had GPS, it would give you the wrong directions. And Jesus uses the powerful Caesar to accomplish his will in terribly and extraordinarily unexpected ways. Because Jesus wants to communicate. He is for the small. He is for the backwoods people of Nazareth. And he is for the insignificant and powerless and uninfluential people of Bethlehem. I want you to think about this in, in this way. Say you go out to lunch, go out to a restaurant. Maybe in this case you're by yourself. Nothing worse than eating by yourself, but say you have to. You're at a restaurant, and then walks in a famous person. I don't know, whoever, pick your favorite famous person. And they walk, holy cow, he's eating in the same restaurant as I'm eating. It's unbelievable. Yes, seeing this famous, walks in, choose a table, he sits down and eat. So then you get out your phone, trying to be real sneaky, you're like behind the menu or the drink menu, and you're, okay, click, got a picture, and then you're quickly, you're posting it to your social media. You say, look, I'm in a restaurant, and this famous person, can you believe that, this famous person? Wow, this is so unbelievable. And you finish your lunch and leave. Oh, it's kind of, maybe you might think that's kind of cool. But now let's compare that with another lunch. Let's say you go out to lunch with an important 
person in your life, a loved one, maybe your spouse, maybe your wife or your husband, maybe one of your children, maybe your mom or your dad, your grandmother, a mentor, someone really important to you. You've been looking forward to this lunch and you sit down for this lunch and you eat and you talk and all of a sudden you're both late to get into work because you just the time got away from you. It was a great meal and a great conversation. Which one of these is more meaningful to you? Well, yeah, I mean, it's obvious. It's obvious which is more meaningful to us. I mean, it's kind of cool to see a famous person, whatever, but who cares? It's something meaningful. And when Jesus planned his birth, this is precisely what he wanted us to understand. That God with us, God with us, with the small and the lowly and the insignificant, is so much better than God up on a throne that we can never get access to. God with us is better than God up on a lofty throne that we, like, well, the important people must get up there. And he says, no, I want you to understand. I am with you. I am, I am with the small and the, and the meaningless and the marginalized and the insignificant. This is a critically important part of the birth announcement of Christ. He was born in a particular way to tell us, I'm with you. I want to hang out with you. Whatever you do when you've got nothing to do, I'm going to do some of that with you, Jesus would say. God with us is better than God with us on a lofty throne. In fact, let's continue on to verse 8. God with us is better than God on a lofty throne. In fact, he enters the sheepfold. So the second birth announcement is Jesus is a savior from the shepherd. So look down at verse 8, and Ben was kind enough to read these verses for us this morning. In that same region, there were some shepherds out in a field, and they were watching over their flock by night. It was nighttime, and an angel appears to them and announces that Jesus has been born. Tells these shepherds that a Savior has been born. He's uh, in the city of David. They would have known that's Bethlehem. He's lying in a manger. Jesus is a savior from the shepherds. This is one thing that's really important to note here. It's not merely where the angels went, but what I think maybe even more important is to note where the angels didn't go. They didn't go to the governor's house. They didn't go to the governing assemblies area, the forum or the, the place where the important bodies of government gather. The angels didn't go to the high priest. Didn't go to the Pharisees, didn't go to the Sadducees, didn't go to any of the religious or uh, governmental elites, didn't go to the civic center where maybe the businessmen would gather, didn't go to any of these places. The angel could have gone to any of these places, and they show up at the shepherds. Could you imagine the meeting in heaven before the birth of Christ? Jesus is, of course, meeting with the angels. Okay, here's how it's going to go. Everybody's got a schematic. You're going to go here and here, and, and Jesus is going to say, Okay, angels, after I'm born, what I want you to do is go to the shepherds. And there's an angel in the back. He's new. Jesus, I, I'm, I know God of the universe always existed, but just a tip. Took a marketing class in college, community college. I think maybe we get some better uh, traction on this if maybe we went to some important people. Jesus said, it's okay, you're new. Knock it off. You're going to go to the shepherds. See, he, what's important is he wanted us to know he is from the shepherds. 
it's more than him just merely extending an announcement to guys who had nothing else to do. The sheep were in the pen for the night, so they got plenty of time on their hands. Jesus is communicating, this, these are my people. I'm a shepherd, and so I want my, my fellas to know that I'm here. The angels went to the shepherds because he is a shepherd. The same prophet, Micah, in Micah chapter 5 says this in verse 4 of Micah 5. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into the land, you might think when the wolf when the wolf comes into the land and treads our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of man. They shall, he shall shepherd his people. Jesus, through the angels, announces his birth to the shepherds because he wants us to know he is from the shepherds. He is his shepherd of his people. He tells the shepherds, go and see the manger where the baby is laid because that will be a sign to you. And in so doing, the shepherds then become a sign for us. We say, well, what kind of a savior is Jesus? He's a shepherd savior. That the announcement might be made to these shepherds tells us that he is a shepherd for us. He has come to be the comforting shepherd for us in the night. The angels then break out and, and a host shows up. Uh, and they say this in Luke chapter 2. If I can find you here. Look at verse 14. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. One angel is kind of scary. A whole gang shows up. And they say this, probably loudly. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now I want us to know something about this before I move on from this. We sometimes take this verse... And we cross-stitch it on a pillow. Or we paint it onto a sign. And you should do those things. If you're into cross-stitch, I don't know how to cross-stitch. I'd probably bleed all over the thing. But what we do is we pull that verse out and we say, glory to God in the highest. And we forget that what the angels are saying are just as important as where they're saying it and the people who are hearing it. It's glory to God in the highest because he announces his birth to shepherds. It's glory to the God in the highest because he is a shepherd like you guys. The glory of God is profoundly seen in the fact that God is a shepherding God. The glory of God is not that he made, went from nothing to making himself into something. The glory of the God is the fact that he made himself nothing. The glory of God is not that he will go from being a shepherd to a king. The glory of God is... He's a shepherd. And this is what the angels want the shepherds to understand. Don't you, you understand him being in the manger? You're not seeing that and saying, oh, man, it's going to be great when he has glory. What the angel is saying, look at him in the manger. That's glorious. Because that's what this God is like, that he would be laid in a manger. He is the shepherd one. He is, he is one who cares for us and provides for us and protects us and nurtures us. That's why I believe Psalm 23 is, in fact, about Jesus. 
whether or not David would have known it. My guess is he would have, but I'm going to read it. It's familiar to you, but let's read it again now with Christ in a manger in our mind. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus is a savior from the shepherds. God is a shepherding God. His nature, his values, what he loves to do, what he's into is he's a loving kind, a God of loving kindness, a God of fondness towards his sheep, and he wants to care for us. The sheep awaken at night when they catch the scent of a predator. And the shepherd will go to the sheep and he will sternly rebuke them for not having enough faith. I mean, it sounds stupid, doesn't it? Oh, gosh. Stupid's a bad word in my house. It sounds silly, doesn't it? The shepherd grabs the sheep, says, I'm here, and the sheep immediately hears his voice, goes, oh, he's here. Lays back down. Usually a group of shepherds would even hum a tune, even sing a song, and the sheep in the sheepfold would hear it and go, okay, they're still here. We can lay down, bring on the wolves. Got the shepherds. They got a staff, they got a rod, and they know how to use them. I can see. That's what Jesus, when he came to the shepherds, he said, I want you, this is what I'm like. I'm the shepherd Savior. What Jesus is not like, if we can compare it this way, and we got to keep this in mind, sometimes, especially this time of year, a lot of famous people, not to pick on famous people today, if you're a famous person, I apologize, don't mean any offense. Uh, this time of year, and it's good, it's, it's good for PR to remind us all to be serving, but you'll see videos of them on the news and other places where some famous athlete or celebrity of some kind will be working at a soup kitchen, uh, serving soup to folks who don't have enough uh, food to get by. And listen, I'm not belittling that. If you want to serve in the soup kitchen, it's awesome. Go for it. It's not my point here. But my point is that sometimes when Mr. Big Time serves the little guy, it's very condescending. It's like, here you go, from me who can afford all the soup in the world to you, accept my gracious ladleful of soup. What's the appropriate thing to say? Hey, then hook me up with a little more chicken. You get me all broth. Okay. If you're ever being soup, served soup by a famous person, you have my permission to ask for more chicken. It can be very condescending. Okay, I need the help, I'm down on my luck, I've lost my job, whatever it is, now, now I've got to go to the soup kitchen, now I've got Mr. Big Pants. I mean, it's nice, I guess, but I know I'm going to, once this soup is gone, I've got to figure out where the next meal comes from, and he's going to go to a mansion. 
be very condescending. When Jesus announces to the shepherds that He's a shepherding Messiah, He makes very clear He is not the condescending Savior who says, oh boy, you've gotten yourself into a pickle. Lucky I'm here to bail you out. It's not how shepherds operate. His glory is most revealed in the fact that His, his garments are, are stained with the grass that He's sitting on with His sheep. And when He goes into town, He smells of His flock. He smells like sheep. Good, bad, well, I don't know if there's a good smell of sheep. His, and this is not him being condescending or being humiliated. This is his glory is revealed in the fact that he smells of sheep and looks of sheep. And uh, he's got sheep hair? Is that what you call it? I don't know. He's got sheep wool. Sheep other stuff. And he's shepherding and he's caring. And uh, for the sheep whose legs uh, have stiffened, he will work the joints. And for the sheep uh, whose skin has become chafed, he will uh, anoint the oil, as we read in Psalm 23. And for the sheep who have uh, bugs in their wool that are causing sores, he will pick them out one by one. And for the sheep who have the disease of the eyes, he will break up the crusties and add on the oil. And, and his glory is made known in being a shepherd sitting on the grass, caring and sacrificing. Let me give one last illustration before we go to our final point. And so you get a big medical bill in the mail. This happens from time to time. There's two ways a medical bill can be handled. Well, there's a number of ways, but these two I'm going to compare. Let's say, for example, you have health insurance, and for whatever reason, you've worked through your deductibles, which means you probably had three liver transplants or something, I don't know. And your insurance. So say, for example, you've got insurance, you worked your way through the deductibles for that year, and I'm sorry you had that kind of year, and then you get the statement a few weeks later, and it says they covered it. I know some of you are going, when does that happen? Listen, it happens. You know, you get, oh, the insurance covered it. Okay, great. That's wonderful. Okay, but let's say another example. Let's compare this to an example. You get the big bill in the mail, big medical bill in the mail, and you don't have insurance. You don't know what in the world you're going to do. And one of your friends hears the medical bill, a good buddy of yours, he says, you know what, I already called the doctor, took care of it, it's covered. You can't even tell me no, because I just wrote him a check. Now, which of those two is more meaningful? Now, the bill is paid in either case, right? I don't think any of us, when we got the statement from the insurance company saying they paid the bill, we never, none of us went, oh, thank you. <laughs> Honey, do we have any thank you cards? We need to issue a thank you, do we, a gift basket, something. They paid the bill. I mean, no, we don't care. Of course they paid the bill. If they wouldn't have paid the bill, we would have called them up and given them a piece of our mind. But a friend pays it. I mean, then we're, we don't even, we're speechless. What do you say? You know how much it was? Yeah, I know how much it was. I wrote a check for it. You don't have that much money. I know, it was sacrifice. I heard, I'm going to go without some other stuff because I wrote that check. What's more meaningful? We have to understand, God with us, the shepherding God who smells of us is better than a God on his throne dispensing his stuff to us. Then he's just the insurance company. God, I'm, I'm, in, I'm stuck again. You're going to help, help me out. Okay, I'll cover it again. No, he's a shepherd next to us. God with us is better than a God dispensing his stuff to us. He is a savior from the shepherds, and his glory is revealed in that. 
In fact, God is better than his stuff. And let's close with this final uh, observation, this final birth announcement. Jesus is a Savior worth the wait. Jesus is a Savior worth the wait. Look with me down at verse 15. The angels went away from heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened. The angels, as impressive as they were, left an impression on the shepherds, and the shepherd says, we got to go see this. And I'm going to make a suggestion as to why they would be so anxious to go see Jesus. Number one, they were probably anticipating the Messiah. But there's one word in there that probably piqued the shepherd's interest and probably made them very motivated, and it was this. He will be wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. And the shepherd's going, what are you you talking about? I've made a thousand of those. I've fed a thousand sheep from a thousand different mangers. What do you mean, the shepherd? How how could the shepherd be coming in a manger? This is my kind of savior. Their, Their faith was encouraged. Their anticipation was encouraged, not just merely because angels had showed up, Not just merely because they had been so blessed to hear that the Savior had come. The announcement was, guys, he's one of you. You're going to want to see this. You are going to see the Savior, and it's going to blow your mind. He's laying in a manger. I don't know how to compare this, but maybe this will help. Let's say, for whatever reason, the angels decided to announce the Messiah's arrival to a mechanic. He said, don't worry, just work with me on this. He said, go. You will find the manger laying on a 450 small block. Right, see, you get it now. Sermon's over. That's, I mean, this is what the shepherd, a manger, what? he's talking our language. He's a shepherd who is of the shepherds, and now he's born in a manger, and all the shepherds are going, I wish I was born in a manger. I'm a shepherd, that would have been so awesome. And so there's simple, yet bold faith said, let's go, and let's see if it's happened. Is that what they said? What'd they say? Let's go see this thing. That has happened. No questions asked. The shepherds hear an angel's announcement that the Savior has come and he's a shepherding Savior. And they say, oh, we got to see this. This is going to be incredible. And they go and see, and everything is just as the angels had predicted. And and their minds are blown. He was in a manger. They went in haste. And they found him. They went in haste and saw him. And then when they left, they glorified God and they told everybody they could see what they had seen. They were praising God. Everything was just as they had been told. The shepherds had received uh, without seeing, by faith, uh, the revelation from the angels and they received it with great joy. In fact, I would suggest in the story of Christ's birth in the New Testament, the shepherds believe quicker than anyone else. Even Mary takes a little bit of time to figure this thing out. The shepherds here, they go, oh, it happened. Let's go see this thing that has happened. And the shepherd's response to this Savior and the kind of Messiah he is, is glory. In fact, they begin acting like the angels. They're glorifying and praising God. And just so you know, that was very unusual behavior for shepherds. They would normally make a lot of noise, and usually that wasn't a good thing. But they gave great glory to God. 
When they left Jesus, I want you to pay attention to just one thing. When they left Jesus' side, what did they take with them? What did they receive from this shepherding Messiah? Nothing. He's just a baby. They went and saw the Messiah was born. He's laying in a manger. He's a shepherding Messiah, and we can't believe Jesus is coming just like one of us. And when they left, they left glorifying God. And what had they received from Messiah? Just the Messiah. They were glorifying God just because they, they had a Messiah. They had a Savior that they needed. In fact, they had a Savior they wanted. He was a Savior that was worth the wait. Another prophet, Habakkuk, says this in Habakkuk chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. Number one, it's hard to spell. It's Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. It's actually the very end of the book of Habakkuk. It's a song that the prophet has written. I'm not going to sing it. I don't know the melody. This is his song. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit of the vines produce, nor fruit be on the vines, I should say, the produce of the olive oil fail, and the fields yield no food, even though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, what does he have at this point? He's got nothing. Yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. This is the prophet echoing what the, the shepherds are learning. You can take everything away from me. If I've got my Messiah, my feet are treading on high places. And this is precisely what happened to the shepherds. They go to the Messiah laying in a manger with nothing to offer other than himself, and they leave glorifying God because that's all that they needed because he is a Savior worth the wait. In order to experience that, the truth is we have to let go of the God that we would want to be able to enjoy the God who is with us. Think of it this way. If God did your bidding, you would not ple be pleased with him, nor would he be glorious. He would be your errand boy. But God is glorious because his ways are different than our ways, and yet he is compelled to be with us even in a manger. He is compelled to be with us as the God who he is and make, make known to us that he wants to be with us and shepherd us. His glory is seen in the fact that he became one of us in order to save us. You can say it this way, God with us is better than a God of our own design. I don't know what you think you want God to do or to be or how he ought to act. But the shepherds understood this, the Messiah is worth the wait and God with us is better than a God we might design of our own. There is no God better than that one in the manger. There is no glory more glorious than the manger. There is no power, no powerful than a shepherd. All right, let me sum up, and then we'll close with a couple more Christmas songs. 
So as we said, Jesus' birth is not just a means to an end. He didn't decide to be born in the manner he was uh, born in, in the way you and I make decisions. Let's say, for example, you're deciding to go on a trip for Christmas, going to visit family. You're going to decide, do I drive or do I fly? Driving takes longer, flying costs more money, and we sort of try and figure out the best way to go. And Jesus doesn't make decisions that way. Everything that God does is intentional, and it's on purpose. And everything he does is, is meant to reveal to us his nature, what he's like, his values, his motives, his agenda. And every detail of Christ's birth tells us that God's mission is a mission to save sinners, and he wants to save sinners in a particular way. Jesus' birth announcement tells us that he came for the smallest of us. He stooped to the lowest of us that we might find new life in him. So we have to be careful of just one thing, just a, a brief warning. We tend to think we aren't small. This is why pride is terribly dangerous. It's not just because it's a character flaw. The problem with pride is it places our life at a higher place than it should be in a place where Jesus didn't go. In a sense, we lift ourselves up in our pride, and Christ comes as the baby in the manger, and we miss him, because he's where the small are. And somehow, in our pride, we thought we're better than a manger. I mean, certainly, the Messiah should have a little more dignity than that. Pride is dangerous, because in our pride, we risk missing the Savior altogether, because he came for the small. Might I suggest that you pray that God would humble you? that you might let go of a view of yourself that it's more lofty than it ought to be. And instead, we might be lifted up in Christ. Jesus' birth announces that he's come to care for us as a shepherd. And some of us today who are Christians, I think we need to settle on this one just for a little bit. It turns out the road from here to glory is not a straight path. Have you guys figured that out yet? There's some curves in there that you didn't see coming. There's some valleys in there that were much, much darker than you thought you would ever have to see. I mean, if we're honest, the, the difficulty we've faced, what we do is we tend to start to try and defend ourselves, defend our hearts. And that defensiveness, that protection of I don't want to be hurt again, what it does is calluses start to form and they start to stack. And pretty soon our heart used to used to be so tender to a shepherd, it's now a rock. We might say it this way, I believe in Jesus, I know the Bible says he loves me, but I'm not sure if he cares. He's our shepherd. He knows every single one of the wounds that you have, and he has his own wounds to match. Not one of your unexpected turns, not one of your dark valleys, not one inch of your journey has been by accident, and not one moment of it was at all in any way spiteful punishment from him. It's all an act of grace where he does the hard work in your life to draw you closer to him. He cares, he's in it, he is guiding you to that perfect pasture, and when your legs can't carry you, he does.
He is our shepherd. By his grace, perhaps he could soften our hard hearts that we might rest in his shepherding arms. Finally, he is worth the wait. You know, one day we're going to see him again. Everyone who's been made alive in Christ through faith will see Christ one day in his glory. The moment we see him, everything from this life is going to snap into focus. Every second of every moment of this life we're going to look at and we're going to realize that he was as close to us as he could have possibly been the entire time. And during all of those times, he was shaping us into this beautiful masterpiece, which is forming us into the image of Christ through every moment of our life with him. And when we see him in that moment, immediately we will know in the deepest places of our hearts, it was all worth it. It was all worth it. Just like those shepherds, when they looked and saw the baby in the manger, they said, oh, it's going to be fine. In that moment, when we see him, we will say, oh, it's been worth it. It's been more than worth it. Jesus designed his birth as an announcement. This is my only question. We're going to end with this. Will you hear it? Will you hear what he's saying to you and trust him? Will you finally let go of all your fear and all of your doubt and trust him and say, you know, I need your forgiveness, Jesus. Are you ready for him to cleanse you from all your rebellion? Are you ready to let him peel away the hardness of your heart? His sacrifice on the cross was for you, and he rose from the grave for you. And if you will trust him, he will give you eternal life.